You're listening to Film School, the on-air online source for independent film. Film that's changing the way we look at cinema and the world. I'm Nathan Callahan. I'm Mike Kaspar. On this program, we'll be speaking with cinematographer Eric Darstadt of The Exiles, groundbreaking film made between 1958 and 1961 that chronicles one night in the lives of young Native American men and women living in the Bunker Hill District of Los Angeles. You can listen to this interview, as well as interviews with Alex Gibney, Haskell Wexler, Harmony Kareen, Albert Mazels, John Sales, John Turturro, Guy Madden, Philip Glass, Frederick Weissman, and many more online at filmschoolradio.com. That number again, filmschoolradio.com. This is a great film. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, uh, it's unusual, in, and I liked you, uh, your take on it. It has the feel of of a sort of a punk film. Yeah, it really is a, a, a punk ethic going on here. We're talking about Indians yeah. in in uh, the turn of the decade, nineteen fifty eight to nineteen sixty. Yeah, the director, uh, whose name is Kent McKenzie, had been studying film at USC. Yeah, he'd done one project on Bunker Hill. Yeah, which was heavily edited by the powers that be at the university because they didn't want to make it political. And Bunker Hill at the time in Los Angeles was being uh, bought up so that developers could turn it into Disney Hall and, well, it wasn't Disney Hall back then, but Mm. they could turn it into (coughs) the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and all the civic buildings that are down there right now. So it would be safe to call it the gentrification of that area. It's more than gentrification. I mean, gentrification, they they call it that, but I always look at gentrification as more of a... How you want to say it? A grassroots a cleaning up of by white people usually. Okay. I, you know, I'm, and yeah. this is this was like a major developers buying out of the Bunker Hill area. Gotcha. They demolished homes that were built in the uh, turn of the century mm-hmm. in the 1900s, and there were some beautiful Victorian homes back then. This was you have to remember uh, back in uh, turn of the century, you had the Alvaro Street district mm-hmm. where Los Angeles was formed. They were the city hall was there, and then the suburb was literally Bunker Hill, which you know wasn't even a suburb. It was just a way to be near the city, up on a hill that was about two miles away. Those homes had been let go. They were they were being used though. Mm-hmm. They were just in bad repair. Mm-hmm. They were being used by pensioners and uh, people on what now would be Social Security. I guess it was back in the fifties. They were having Social Security. They were just getting by, mm-hmm. and uh, they actually had a community there. It looked like a, a vibrant little community. From what I saw, there's a, a short film uh, that's included in the package with the exiles called Bunker Hill. Uh-huh. Uh, and and the, the community looked to be a, a thriving senior community. Uh, people were watering their lawns yeah. and walking their dogs and going down to the market. There was a, a, a great marketplace in the area, yeah. famous for Angel's Flight, which was built on 3rd Street uh, back in, when would that have been? I think 1901. Mm. Angel's Flight went up there. They built the Third Street Tunnel later on, which you'll see in the Exiles. Uh, and Angel's Flight was moved over a few blocks. Bunker Hill was raised. The Victorian homes were gone. Uh, and Kent McKenzie, the director of the Exiles, had done an f- earlier film just documenting that community. Mm-hmm. Not the raising of Bunker Hill, but mm-hmm. the community of seniors that lived there. And then went on to uh, visit, later on, a small Indian community in Arizona. Okay. American Indian. Let's American Indian, okay. yeah. yeah. Native Americans uh, to do a second film project. 
and found that one of the major problems of that community <laughs> was that Native Americans were leaving and going to, to cities and just losing their identity completely in, in uh, I guess, the white man's culture, mm -hmm. but not in a positive way. There was a lot of alcoholism, uh, a lot of just, I, I don't want to call it wasting of lives, but there wasn't, uh, they weren't, uh, they were living in the tenements of Bunker Hill, uh, drinking and partying and fighting. Is, uh, and this was what this documentary really shows. Not that that's all the Indians were doing, right, but right. there was a huge community that were living reservations to try and make it elsewhere and were just getting lost in this big city environment. Correct. Well, what's also funny is there's a lot of, uh, since this is like 1960, a lot of beat culture is yeah. working its way in. There, there's a great soundtrack by the Revels, and the one song, amazing that was amazingly that was turned down for the soundtrack soundtrack to the Exiles, was Comanche. Comanche is the song by the Revels that you hear in Pulp Fiction, okay. uh, and, and and the Revels actually that's R E V E. L-S, mm -hmm. the V, not Rebels, but Rebels, uh, got a little bit of play out of that. I think they were up in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. They were kind of a kind of a surf group. Mm -hmm. They had that uh, I, I like Link what you, Ray sound going on. In I like what you call it, the, the Go Daddy Go kind of sound. They had yeah. that, that kind of... Yeah, you you hear it all the time now, and it's it's sort of part of... we Yeah, and, yeah. and, and that's right. This film has that... That beatnik sensibility. Well, it's this just about about the um, the music of it makes it extra fun. Yeah, there's all these elements. You got your beat thing going on. You got your punk thing going on. You got gorgeous, and this is what we're going to talk to Eric Darstadt. Uh, gorgeous cinematography in yeah. this film. This yeah. that that's the high point of this. Uh, the Exiles is yeah. the cinematography. Yeah. Yeah. Besides capturing this very strange uh, period of time in Los Angeles during the turn of the decade 1950 to 60 you have kent mckenzie the director who was proposing we get rid of the dramatic structure of a film and put in and just leave a narrative structure of the film so we're not really moving to some crazy climax yeah, we're not we're, act one act two act three yeah we're just we're trying to get real i guess yeah, we're tr we're following their lives yeah and we're and and there is no at the end, you walk off into the sunset with the girl. That's yeah. not this, that's not this film. As director Kent McKenzie said of his groundbreaking film completed in 1961, The Exiles is an anti-theatrical and anti-social documentary film. It is conceived not necessarily in protest against these two forms of film usage, but rather in search for a true and different format which would reveal the complex problems of the Indians living in the city of Los Angeles. With us today is Eric Darstadt, one of the film cinematographers who, since his work with McKenzie, has photographed hundreds of films from 30-second commercials to features. The majority of Darstadt's work has been in documentary films, where he has worked for National Geographic, Disney, MGM, the American Film Foundation, and PBS. Eric Darstadt, welcome to Film School. Thank you very much. Now, this is a this is a remarkable film. I I've saw it for the first time over the weekend. Had to watch it again. How did you come in contact with the director Kent McKenzie? What was your first meeting with him? Well, basically, most uh, Kent and, and myself and John and 
lot of the other people who worked on the film. We were all uh, we all went to the USC film school together in the 50s. We all became good friends, and of course we worked on films together, and we went to movies together and partied together. Uh-huh. What what what, do, what films did you see together? You remember, call any of the ones from uh, from that period? Well, of course we watched a lot of uh, documentary films oh. from the 30s and 40s. Uh, from Flaherty to Humphrey Jennings, uh, oh. etc., uh, and plus a lot of you know the early classic films uh, and also the contemporary films that that over that period. Now, now, was there elements of those films? I'm sure that you brought into your work. Was there any particular uh, ethic that you brought with them? Was there a, a way of looking at life and interpreting it that you brought to your work? I think a lot of the films that had a large influence on the way on the exiles and the way it was done was uh, probably um, Humphrey Jennings' films uh, from uh, England during the 40s, as well as the Italian uh, neorealism films like uh, Bicycle Thief and so on that came out after the war. So the area that you were shooting this film, uh, Bunker Hill, had you ever been there before? Because I fairly familiar with the area. At that point in time, it seems to perhaps been a bit off limits for people that were going to USC. Was it a new experience for you down there? At, in Not the, really. We, yeah? we, when we were students in the mid-50s at, in, at USC, we used to go down there quite a bit to uh, go to movies. Because uh-huh. uh, there were a lot more theaters downtown than, than there is now. Right. Now, th- so it was a pretty... And it wasn't that far from campus. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is. If if you're in the mood, you can practically walk there. Is uh, right. It, yeah. <laughs> now, now, did you notice at that point in time was the uh, uh, American uh, Native American community was it visible, or was this something that was pretty much exposed by uh, Kent McKenzie after he visited the uh, the reservation in Arizona? I think, uh, as, at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, it was. I didn't really know much about it until after Kent started telling me about it yeah. when, he, when he was doing uh, research on the film. Um, I mean, I'm sure that the two Indian bars that are in the exiles were there be, at that time when we were going to school, but we didn't know about them. We didn't go there. Um, when uh, you, now there was a, you said that the, there was the sort of a cadre of people going to the uh, USC uh, film school. Did uh, when Kent was writing this film, was there much collaboration? Was there a sort of a give and take back and forth as he was putting the idea of this film together? Were you involved in 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 that? Not so much in the initial phases. I think he that was pretty much Kent by himself, uh, basically. Um, he read an article in Harper's Magazine in 1956 uh, about how the white men were still screwing the Indian in terms of taking away land and so on. Yeah. And that was kind of the um, thing that sparked his interest. And he did a lot of research in Southwest Reservation, talked to a lot of tribal elders and tribal leaders. And, and eventually it ended up in 57, uh, he met this, this this group of young American Indians living downtown. Now that was my next question. So he met them because much of the film is based on their own life experiences. In fact, I assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that much of the narration, they're just really talking about their own lives in in the narration of this film. Very much so. Yes, very much so. They were basically, Kent talked them into basically collaborating on their film and showing uh, that part of their lives that was uh, 
he thought was important. Yeah, most of the cast, uh, if not all the cast, had little professional training as actors. Is that correct? He, that's correct. Yeah, so, they'd never really done any film work before. Well, they, in, in varying degrees, they, they come off very, these are very natural, naturalistic, if that's the right word to use, in their performances. Uh, a little rough, some of it, but you... Some of it, yes, which but, is understandable. Which but. Is, but, but you still, what I think the benefit, the, the, uh, the advantage of it is, th this feels, and, and Nathan mentioned it, it was essentially pitched as a documentary. Uh, and it, I have to be honest with you, when I was watching the previews, the trailer for it, I thought it was a documentary. It wasn't until I actually started watching the film that I realized that it was a narrative. So there's a this, right. this film is right. kind of a hybrid, if you will, in terms of, and I can't imagine. I mean, at the time, this had to be a a pretty much a groundbreaking kind of film to make, in that it felt like a documentary, but it was actually a narrative film. It really was to a large degree, although we call it a documentary, but it was pretty much shot like a narrative film, uh, the way it was. Uh, the way we set up shots and the way we handled the people and, and the cast in the film and so on. So let's get into that a little bit. Uh, how, how did you set up shots? So you're, you're on a very low budget, I hear. So what, what was involved? How big was the crew? And, and you know, you, you show up, they show up. Uh, how did you, you know, react and interact with each other? Well, basically, uh, when Kent decided to go ahead with this uh, project. He uh, gradually invited what he considered myself, well, myself, the two other cameramen on the film, and certain other key players. He invited to come along and spend some time with these people down the bars and just, just get to know them and for them to become comfortable with us and vice versa. And so we sat and drank beer and cheap wine and, and um, basically everybody got to know each other. Well, I, I want to ask uh, in in terms of uh, the uh, the actual the decision to shoot in black and white. Now, I assume that that was an economic decision as much as it was an artistic choice. That it was mainly economic. I don't think we ever even considered color. Um, yeah. uh, for a couple, of, well, first of all, the main one was economic, and the other reason was that at that time um, the color film wasn't as high speed as they are nowadays. Ah. So it had been much and different. Being, as most of it was being shot at night, we felt that uh, black and white was the only thing we could really do it on. Well, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy uh, colli uh, collision of circumstance here then because this film, its real, its true strength is the, uh, the, the, the cinematography film. here. And I want to, by the way, we're, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Eric Darstadt, and the and uh, the film is The Exiles, a re, the restored version of a 1961 film by Kent McKenzie, um, and yourself, Robert Kaufman, and John Arthur Morrell were uh, were the cinematographers on this. When you made the decision to go black and white and to give it this look, you you all seem to be on the same page in the way that this sort of, as I heard it referred to, as sort of an oversaturated black and white. How did you achieve that look? And it was a fairly brave thing to do. It, it, it didn't look like other films. What, how did that sort of unfold? I think basically, generally speaking, we just uh, tried to do what we considered good photography. Uh, I think all of us, since all three of us had gone to USC at the same time, we all uh, we had a very good uh, 
camera and lighting instructor there uh, at the time, Ralph Wolsey. He was a cameraman himself. And he, I think he gave us a very good foundation to, to build on. And also, I think we admired a lot of the cinematographers that come kind of gone before us, like Arthur Miller, Greg Tolan, and James Wong Howe, and so on. So we pretty much were on the same page in terms of what we considered good photography. Now, uh, how difficult was that, you know, actually the approach to the film? Did uh, Kent McKenzie, did he tell you, did, did you discuss that a lot, that, you, that he wasn't going for a traditional dramatic revelation in the film, that he was looking for something that was more realistic and just a, a straight narrative about people's lives. Did he spend a lot of time talking about that, or is that something we, he... We talked about it yeah. uh, off and on throughout the production, yes. Uh, um, in terms of the photography and lighting itself, basically we all were on the same uh, page in terms of we wanted most of the... A lot of the scene, most of the, film, the scenes in the film are lit, except for like the mark in the beginning and the street scenes and so on. Uh, so we just wanted to make it look like realistic without making it look lit. Yeah, that it, you did an incredible job because it, it's very difficult to, to see it, where the lighting's coming from. That's not natural. It just appears that we're we're looking at the streets, and it, it's it's remarkable how how natural it does look. It, it seems that you're just walking through L.A. with a camera capturing history and just happened to have beautiful right. lighting at the time. Yeah. yeah. Were those very problematic? Did you spend a lot of time figuring out how you're going to light it, or were, were these things that you were, because of your uh, background at USC, that you were familiar with what you're doing and you just applied it? I think, like I said, yeah, we had a good foundation to, to build on. And, of course, we had, with this film, in all facets of production on this film, there was a lack of money. Yeah. So, basically, we were limited in terms of the equipment we had to use. What were, um, I heard that you used a, was it a car battery in some cases? Sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, yes. And, uh <laughs> Basically, we just use whatever equipment that uh, people would lend us. Uh, occasionally, if we needed something special, we would rent it, but we didn't really generally have the money to do that. Uh -huh. yeah. So it was done on a very, uh, with a, just a rudimentary type of equipment that we could scrape together. Now, I, I know you weren't present at all the uh, the scenes for the film. There's there's one that I find fascinating. It's it's right near the end of the film at uh, Hill X, the um, where. Oh yes, Hill where, X. Right. Yeah, Hill X, which was Round Hill, which ended up being Dodger Stadium or part of Dodger Stadium. But that's right. But they're uh, they they the Indians after the Native Americans after the bars close down, drive up on Friday night to the top of this. Uh, isolated, uh, undeveloped hill overlooking the city and, and party. Well, there's a certain uh, hill that's yeah, about a half mile from downtown L.A. called Hill X. <laughs> I mean, some people used to have cars around there, you know, and well, they ride all of, uh, up to Hill X, you know. It's pretty good, you know, I mean, and it's cool up there. And you sing your own tribal songs, you know. Anything you want to do, you know. Kind of reminds you at home, too, you know. And 
So wondering how how's everybody back home and haven't seen him for a long time. You know. Basically the guy from your home, you know, comes around there, you know, and then you sit there and talk about old times, man. This is good. Uh were you present at that shoot? Yes, I oh, did. We oh. did uh two or three nights up there. And that was our probably in terms of production, that was our biggest uh setup uh, and in terms of the size crew we had and so on. We just got uh, all our friends together and to help and so um so that was quite an involved uh, setup. Of course, a lot of the other little scenes in the film, we were just basically two or three people of us doing the everything. Yeah, I, I've got to ask before we leave that scene on Film X, there, a fight breaks out there. Are, are, they, right. are they? Is this uh, choreographed in any way, or were these people really mixing it up? What? It was pretty much choreographed. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Eric Darstadt. The film is The Exiles. And there's just one other scene I want to get to. Um, it's the, um, what I call it, the uh, joyride through Los Angeles, the, the car, the drunken joyride. Uh, oh, through the tunnel. Yes, through the Third Street Tunnel there. Were you, were you involved in that? Yes, I was. Uh, right. That's that's absolutely uh, that's gorgeous. I, I the shots in there, the the action in there, the way it was put together and edited, and and the framing and and the way the camera moves is just uh, it's jarring and it just brings you right into it. I, I was I was really just extremely moved by that. I watched it several times. Uh, thank yes, you. Yes, we had we had had a good time too in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Took so, a lot of trips through the tunnel, but <laughs> yeah. So you were taking of the. Partaking of the Thunderbird too. <laughs> I d- well, on occasion, <laughs> no. it wasn't my favorite wine, but <laughs> yeah. Now I got to tell you, Eric, I, I hope that you and and the other cinematographers are are getting a royalty check from Quentin Tarantino every couple of uh, every month or oh, so because this this film had definitely. I mean, it. You see, this is the thing about this film. It resonates with a lot of filmmakers. You can just see a lot of their work reflected in what they saw in in the work that you and uh, and uh, John and Robert did on this film so uh, congratulations on that i i wanted well, to know you. i i wanted to kind of trace a little bit of the history of the film it opened at a couple of film festivals it did well at venice and in another film festival but eventually sort of died on the vine it uh, did yeah sorry um, go ahead i'm sorry yeah, it, it did quite well in uh, in uh, 61, 62 at film festivals. It won a prize in the Mannheim Film Festival in Germany and in Venice, Edinburgh, London, first New York Film Festival, and and so on. They seem to recognize the well, stylistically how how different and innovative this film was. Now, I think so. It just it it maybe I don't know whether it was ahead of its time or whatever it was. It just couldn't find a commercial distributor. Right now, w- at what point did you find out about the uh, the restoration of the film, the re- sort of the resurrection, if you will, and the re- restoration of the film? At uh, what point? Well, did you it um, there's a filmmaker by the name of Tom Anderson about five six years ago at least who used to clip by the excels in a film called uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess it sparked a renewed interest in the film, and people started asking about it. And then um, Kent had two daughters uh, that were born during the production of the film, who I've kept in contact with ever since. And uh, one of them was approached by Dennis Doris of Milestone Films, 
about whether, because he was in us maybe distributing it. Uh, this was about, oh, four years ago, I guess. And so uh, uh, Ken's daughter, Diane, uh, referred, uh, gave, talked to me and got me to call Dennis and kind of initiate the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennis was very, he's been uh, working on a killer of sheep where he ran into a lot of problems with the music rights. So he was very concerned about this film that the music rights were all cleared, which fortunately they were. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then it just took a while for Dennis had me get in touch with Ross Lippman at the UCLA Film and TV Archives. And so we started talking, and then uh, at that time we didn't exactly know where the original negative was and so on. So John thought it was down at USC, but he hadn't seen it. So, and he was right. It's a, they did, we did find it down there at USC. And uh, then, you know, Ross at UCLA got together with USC and got everything transferred over to UCLA, and then they raised some money to do the restoration work that was necessary on it. And um, and so here it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, among the many uh, surprises, the happy surprises that have occurred since this uh, restoration occurred um, was the inclusion recently in December of, of ni- uh, 2009 of the exiles into the Library of Congress, into its National Film Registry. What a thrill that must have been for you. Oh, yes, I think it was for all of us. You know, it was just, I'm just sorry that, you know, Ken couldn't be around to see everything that's happened with the film in the last couple of years. Well, let uh-huh. me, for our listeners, let me just say that every year the uh, United States Library of Congress decides uh, on 25 films that will be preserved uh, in the United States Library of Congress, and it's called the National Film Registry. And uh, last year, The Exiles was one of those 25. So yeah, it is. It is a shame that that Kent wasn't around to see that happen. But uh, I, I'm. What do you think his reaction would be to all this? Do you have any insight into that? I mean, would would he just be uh, scoffing at it and saying, "Well, you know, we've done so much more since then," or or would he recognize this as a uh, you know, be, be as proud of it? I think uh, he would really uh, um, recognize this as as a mm, see it as a great recognition of his work at that uh, time. Yeah, I mean, he didn't never they made that many films. Through the year, so well, it's it, the idea. It's, it's sort of these these crazy kids with a, a, a few hundred bucks went out and decided we're going to make a movie, and <laughs> they and they ended up in the National Registry of Films. I mean, that in and of itself is a pretty yes. remarkable story. So, uh, and we're right. really extremely proud of. Yes, and, congratulations on that, yeah. Yeah. Eric. You're and, thank you very much. And, to, and also to John and to Robert and to everyone who worked on it and the cast. Uh, it's a memorable cast. It may not be the most perfect, polished uh, set of. Uh, of actors you'll ever see, but there is there's a, there's an energy to all of them. There's a there's obvious they they did their they did well with this film and their and their they parts did. in it, and uh, yeah. uh, they're all to be congratulated. It's, it was obviously a group effort, uh, and uh, congratulations. Yes, congratulations. Your, your work on the Exiles was uh, really tremendous, Eric, and uh, it's well, an honor. Thank you very much. It's an honor having you on our show today, Eric Darstadt. Thank you for being a part of Film School. All right. Thank you very much. For more information about Film School, upcoming guests, and archived interviews, go to filmschoolradio.com.